Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. It's page 914 in the Pew Bibles. Now, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you haven't been with us in a while, we have been slowly working our way through the book of Acts. And we've been doing that to really explore, to engage, to look carefully at how God has set priorities for his people, for the church, that we too are meant to live by as a congregation, as this local church. And, and what we've seen over and over again through the book of Acts is that God is at work, that, that he has a mission and he is fulfilling that mission. He empowers his people by the Holy Spirit to carry out this mission to the ends of the earth. We're not doing it all by ourselves. This is not something that we do. He's up there. We're down here. And we're just kind of like trying to, to get his attention. But the Holy Spirit is empowering us to bear witness to the mission of Christ. God is active and we are active. And, and the Holy Spirit does this empowering not only when he is equipping the church in miraculous ways, like, say, what we saw in Pentecost, when 120 believers suddenly had the ability to speak in other languages in order to communicate the mighty works of God to people in their own native tongues. Or when the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ healed the man born lame who used to sit at the gates of the temple and beg for alms. The Holy Spirit is not only empowering the church when they were proclaiming the gospel with boldness and with full conviction that led to the salvation of multitudes, probably more than 10,000 people at this point, both men and women, being added to the church and to the Lord. The Holy Spirit was not only empowering the church for gospel proclamation as the apostles stood face to face with the very council that had condemned their Lord Jesus Christ to death and was now persecuting them. And here they are, strengthened, equipped, and they're preaching a message of repentance, a message of forgiveness, a message of the reception of the Holy Spirit to their enemies by the strength that the Lord supplies. The Holy Spirit was doing that in very profound and miraculous ways. I think it's easy to see that in the book of Acts. But you know, the Holy Spirit is also empowering the church to bear witness to the mission of Christ in much more ordinary and mundane ways as well. So back in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was guiding the church in prayer and in the Word to prepare they were waiting to see what the Lord was going to do next. And while they were waiting, they said, you know what we need to do? We need to find someone to take Judas's share in this ministry. And the lot fell to Matthias. The Holy Spirit was empowering them to bear witness to the mission of Christ as the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe is coming upon every soul. They're worshiping. They're delighting. They're meeting together. They're having all things in common. They're giving of their possessions to care for each other's needs. 
They're meeting every day in the temple to praise the Lord. And together, they're breaking breads in, bread, bread in homes with glad and generous hearts, praising God, finding favor with all the people. And what did the Lord do with that as they devoted themselves to the church to make the gospel visible? He added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, the Spirit empowered the devotion, their devotion to the church that made the gospel visible in everyday, ordinary ways, and it was compelling to those who were outside the congregation. It was the Holy Spirit that empowered them to pray for more boldness in chapter 4 because they knew that they would have to face even more opposition, and so they prepared through prayer. It was the Holy Spirit that directed them to protect the purity of the gospel and the church when it was threatened by Ananias and Sapphira from within the fold. Ananias and Sapphira were lying to themselves. They were lying to the church. They were lying to God. They were trying to present themselves as more spiritual, more generous than they really were. They failed to recognize the church is the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, this this body that is holy and set apart to be united in love and in fellowship. They were trampling all of that. And what they ended up doing is testing the Holy Spirit because they were thinking that they were beyond the need of holiness, that they could live however they pleased. And believe it or not, the Holy Spirit was also empowering the church to bear witness to the mission of Christ in this passage in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, as they structured and organized themselves for administrative purposes in order to advance the gospel. You see, the Holy Spirit empowers us for mission not only in the miraculous, but also in the mundane. Many people think that this idea of like planning and preparing and heaven forbid, even a little measure of programming could never be spirit empowered. It could never be spirit directed. We just need to forget about all of that preparation, all of that planning, the liturgies, seminaries, training, manuscripts, you know, you name it, and we just need to wing it. We need to be like... We need to be like flower children for Jesus. They just kind of go with the flow. Do it however they feel in that moment. Whatever the, the Lord happens to be leading to. Everything's got to be instantaneous. Everything's got to be extemporaneous. Otherwise, how will we know that the Spirit is empowering it? Well, our passage today is actually going to push against that notion. You see, just like a ship needs the right structure of mainstays, masts, and riggings, all working properly to catch the wind of the Spirit to propel it forward, or just as, a, according to a popular book, the vine needs the right amount of trellis in order to grow and to bear fruit, the church needs the right structure and organization to align the vessel of the church with the wind of the Holy Spirit so that as a body, we might bear more fruit. 
The Word of God increasing as we lead and as we administrate this church to multiply and mature disciples for Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. That the right structure of leadership guides the whole church in the mission of disciple making. The right structure of leadership guides the whole church in the mission of disciple making. And so if you would, read along with me, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The right structure of leadership guides the whole church in the mission of disciple-making. And what we're going to see... the leadership faithfully guide this church by doing three things. We're going to see them acknowledge the problem, set priorities, and delegate responsibilities. Now, if you've read any books on leadership, especially Christian leadership, then you know what I'm talking about. It's just like it seems so pragmatic and so unspiritual, right? I mean, has anybody ever read Christian leadership books? It's like you read theology, and that's one thing, and then there's leadership over here, and there's like no overlap whatsoever. Just wah, wah, wah. Sounds so worldly. But guys, I intentionally made those points purposefully pragmatic in order to highlight the fact that what seems to to really challenge that notion that what seems so practical and mundane could not be spirit-led. Because the reality is it can, and it is. It cannot be, but in this case it is. And so we'll see this as we go along. But first of all, the first thing they do, the church leadership does, is they acknowledge the problem. Now so far when we've looked through the book of Acts, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, I stand in awe of this church. I mean, this is like a dream church. This is the dream team of churches right here. Like, I want to be a part of this church. You see clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's work as they spoke in tongues. Uh, They're at Pentecost. Christ healing people by the hands of the apostles. Prison doors are opening up. And they rejoice even in the fact that they have been beaten and suffered dishonor for the sake of his name. You can see it in the way that they prayed, in the way that they preached, how they devoted themselves so radically to the church that people are actually selling their own possessions and distributing that to those who are in need. 
the needs of this new and massive congregation. Thousands of people are coming to Christ anytime like one of the apostles stands up and preaches one sermon. I mean, I want to be a part of that church. It seems too good to be true. And yet, this church is not without its problems. You've got problems from the outside, those religious and political leaders who are oppressing them and persecuting them for their faith. They, they want to shut up the message of the gospel. Our adversary Satan enticed Ananias and Sapphira to sinfully subvert the mission of Christ from within. You've got 12 leaders for a church of over 10,000 people. That seems crazy. And now we get word that some of the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. But this problem here, this problem is really twofold. There's physical neglect, but that physical neglect is evidence of a deeper problem. The physical neglect is evidence of a spiritual neglect. And so what's happening here in this church is that as the church is devoting themselves to the fellowship, now if you remember what the fellowship is, it means the partnering, the sharing. They were sharing in their lives, their blessings, their burdens, and also their resources. They're holding all things in common. This is why Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira were selling what they had voluntarily, donating the proceeds to those who had need. As they were doing that, verse 1 says that now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the hell. Hellenists. Now, what are Hellenists? They're Greek-speaking Jews, or maybe Greek-acculturated Jews. So they've gone beyond the language. They're actually adopting culture. And they're complaining against the Hebrews because their widows, these Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, perhaps it's because the church was growing so fast I mean, it doesn't have to be sinful, right? The church could be growing so fast that everybody's just kind of scrambling to catch up, right? And they're just throwing this whole thing together and, and these people are being neglected. Or, or perhaps they, they have so many widows now that they're just running out of food. There's not enough in this daily distribution. Or, or maybe, maybe they're just trying to leave it all to, to the apostles to do the work of ministry, right? And so like here, you know, we'll bring our proceeds. We'll lay it down at your feet. Now you go deal with the problem. Now I don't think that's the case, but it could be an option. Or perhaps these Greek-speaking widows couldn't understand what was going on. So maybe the distribution kind of moved from house to house. Like one day it's at Ben's and then it's at Aaron's and then it just kind of moves around. And, and they're given the instructions in Hebrew or Aramaic, and, but these folks spoke, speak Greek, so they don't get the instructions. So there's like, you know, they're showing up at Ben's house and Ben's like, no, no, they're, they're over, over at Stephen's house. And, you know, so then they're like, well, how do you get to Stephen's house? And so Ben has to take them over there. Well, they're not at Stephen's house. They're over at Jason's house. And, and so they're following around. And so every time they end up at the back of the line. Maybe that's what's going on. But regardless of the physical circumstances that led to the problem, consistently what's happening is that these Hellenist widows were being neglected. And friends, this is a big deal. Because in that day, widows and orphans, they didn't have a whole lot of options before them. See, there's no welfare system, there's no Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, there's no government-assistant housing, food stamps, or anything of that sort. When their husbands died, 
many of these Jewish background widows would return back to their homeland and they were dependent solely upon the generosity of family, of friends, or religious institutions just to eat. They had no means of providing for themselves. And if they're coming to Christ in such rapid numbers like everybody else is coming to Christ, and because the gospel by nature is so generous, it's not surprising that they would look to the church just to eat, just to survive. And yet consistently, this demographic of Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. And the church is catching on. See, there's a division among party lines. Jewish acculturated widow before Greek acculturated widow. This is a social injustice. Just as racism or poverty or bigotry or slavery or sweatshops or world hunger or sex trade are social injustice issues. Now, This one might not be as bad as slavery or sex trade in in your mind, but this social injustice was happening within the church. Friends, that is awful. And so this is not simply a physical issue or a social issue. This is a spiritual issue. I said, when we fail to love each other, it is a spiritual issue. When we don't engage with people that are different than us, it is a spiritual issue. See, underneath this physical neglect is a spiritual neglect that, com- that compromises the gospel. Now, perhaps, perhaps every, the, whoever was distributing the food was kind of of this mind. Well, you know, we saw God went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So this food will go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Maybe it was just kind of a simple misunderstanding like that. But now what we see happening is that the gospel is going out to all people everywhere. We preach an impartial gospel impartially. And the result is that a church is comprised of people from every single walk of life. Young, old, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. From every race, every background, every socioeconomic level, every age bracket. All completely different, all brought together. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And that, my friends, is all that matters. And so we should live that way. This is not simply that the widows were were being physically neglected in the daily distribution. This is a neglect of the very implications of the gospel upon our lives. This is a neglect of love. This is a neglect of unity. This is a neglect of service. Those who communicated this complaint recognized that, man, there's something off here. Maybe they didn't even fully acknowledge the degree to which it was off, but they knew that there was something that was inconsistent with the gospel, and they informed the apostles of that, and the apostles knew exactly what the problem was. And so what do they do about it? Do they just go running? It's like, no, we'll handle it. We'll fix it. We'll, We'll invest ourselves in the daily distribution. No. 
No, they didn't because they recognized that this was more than a social issue. That this is a spiritual issue that needed, and so they needed to double down on the word in prayer. See, spiritual issues require spiritual means. Now, friends, as we think about applying this to ourselves, we have got to acknowledge the problem. But we've got to get at the real problem, the root of the problem. We've got to go beyond the physical and the social issue to the spiritual issue that is at work here, underneath it all, right? When, when, we, when we look out at the world, it's easy for us to become very impassioned about social evils. I mean, we see them everywhere. And we should be impassioned by the social injustices that we see in the world. But in our zeal to right the wrongs, often we take the wrong approach to dealing with it. So we start some ministry, we start some parachurch organization, some some non-for-profit to bring social or physical justice, and, and that's good, but if all we're doing is trying to deal with the social or the physical, we will only perpetuate the problem because we're dealing with the symptom and not the disease. Soup kitchens just become about feeding soup. Food pantries, clothing closets, or just offer handouts, not hands up. Shelters only shelter for a night. You see people taking more and more and more and more. There's never enough on the shelves to take care of it all. Workers and volunteers are getting frustrated. People are taking advantage of the system, and the problem is being perpetuated over and over and over and over again. And all because those social injustices that you can think of are really spiritual issues. Now, friends, what this doesn't mean is that we, we go to the other extreme and say, well, you know, we're not going to solve those problems, and so what we just need to do is to kind of gather around in a holy huddle, devote ourselves to preaching and to prayer, that that's all that we really need to do. No, what we need to do is we need to acknowledge that the problem is real and develop a strategy that will allow us to effectively deal with all the issues surrounding the problem. Otherwise, the problem, just like the symptom, will keep reappearing. So that means it's going to take time, and it's going to take a different approach than what we might initially think. But here's something else to consider. If we are not taking care of the underlying spiritual neglect within the church, how on earth do you think we are going to be able to combat the social, physical, and spiritual injustices of the world? Let me just consider that. Just like we see in this passage, it has to start here within the church. That we have got to acknowledge the spiritual problems, the neglect of love, the neglect of unity, the neglect of commitment and service and generosity, the partiality residing underneath the complaint. Otherwise, the squeaky wheel gets the grease And we 
kind of adopt this view that whoever complains the most about whatever wins. And the mission of the church is set aside for the sake of meeting people's felt needs, their wants, their expectations, their personal preferences, instead of showing the world, as Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35, that we are his disciples. And how do we do that? By our love, one for another. And so, situations are going to arise in this church. Problems exist. They will continue to exist. And we need to acknowledge those, and we need to get to the heart of the matter and deal with it holistically. If we don't, these issues will bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And so we've got to acknowledge the problem, the real problem behind the issue. And once we've done that, second, we set priorities. If the apostles had just jumped in, if they'd just taken control of the distribution themselves, which let's face it, that happens in a lot of churches today. Oh, I feel that pull all the time, right? Something's going on. It's just easy for me to grab a wrench and go fix it, right? Then just kind of be like, okay, let's, let's, let's open it up. Can somebody volunteer to do that? And then no one steps up and does it. So I grab the wrench and go and do it anyway, right? But that would have only perpetuated the problem and they, it would have given the church a pass on dealing with the true heart of the matter. Because again, the problem is not the physical neglect, but the failure of the church to live out the implications of the gospel and the whole church. I mean, these widows especially, but the whole church is actually suffering for it. And so the apostles have to make a decision. What is our priority here? What are we going to focus on? We, we can't do everything. Do we devote ourselves exclusively to the fellowship, to the neglect of teaching, the breaking of bread, and the prayers? Do we give up preaching the word to go and serve tables? Well, their answer is obvious from the text, right? Verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And so you, church, find capable, qualified, and committed men of character, and we will appoint them to this duty. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, that's not a cop-out. It's easy to kind of look at that and be like, well, that's great for you, Chet. You just go back to your study and leave us to deal with all the problems, right? It's not as if they were saying, you know what, we, we don't want to deal with this. We don't want to mess with this, so you just go and you find some willing body, somebody that's just able to go and do it, you know, willing to go and do it, or, or you know, find somebody that's not too bright and, and we'll go and we'll guilt them into indentured servitude as they fill this position indefinitely because we really don't want to have to mess with it. And so you go find the patsies and I'll be in my study. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. The reality is they had to set priorities. You see, the apostles' service to the church was not the distribution, which, by the way, that word distribution is the word service, is a conjugate of the word deacon or the conjugate of the word serve. Right? They're not, that's not their, the way that they serve. But also, the apostles don't serve 
tables in the way that would be required of these seven men, these proto-deacons, but to minister, again, that's the, the word service, to serve the word. It's not right for us to serve tables because we're serving the word. See, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13 says, Christ gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, these ministers of the word, these servants of the word, to do what? To equip the saints, that is, the whole church, deacons included, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so our responsibility as the shepherds of this flock is to preach and to pray. Now this tangible service that they're doing, this daily distribution is wonderful, it's great, it's important. It makes the love and the unity and the service of the gospel visible. And we need to be doing this as a church, maintaining our unity and love as we neglect no aspect of service to this church. But the word and the prayer has to be our priority. We've got to do this first because it sets the course for everything else. If we abandon this, then we will derail. And verse 5 says that what they said pleased the whole gathering. Okay? So the whole church is in agreement in this priority. They're in agreement. The unity of the Spirit is evident in their church-wide confirmation of these priorities. And the church isn't getting all excited because now they've got the power. Yes, we get to peak the people for this position. We're in control now. That's not the point at all. It's that they agreed that the priority has to be placed upon the word of God in prayer. And so with great reverence and with respect, they selected seven men of upstanding character from a more, among the more than 10,000 member congregation and they set them before the apostles. Seven out of thousands that level of administration can only happen if every single member is committed to playing their part regardless of titles. Because what you don't see happening is like, oh, you would? They picked Stephen and not me? Well, forget that. I'm just going to sit back on my hands. Without having to be hunted down or coaxed into serving, but doing so out of love, because Christ, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life up as a ransom for many. His, the entirety of his earthly life, from the very conception of the God-man, throughout his obedience to his parents, into his earthly ministry that ended in him laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sin, his rising from the grave so that we might have new life in him and actually live the lives that we were created to live, lives that reflect his very nature and character. That is given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those who are now in him, they want to be like him because they love him. I want to love, I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus served, so I want to serve. 
I'm not in it for titles because the Son of God did not have to condescend, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to the point of death. Guys, he was the greatest because he was a servant of all and a slave to all. And we who are in him are called to be like him. Do you know how many middlemen there are in a company of 10,000 people? I mean, given our entitlement and glory-seeking culture where unless you can advance up the corporate ladder, there's really no incentive for you to work hard, it's like 8,000, right? And 8,000 middlemen and 2,000 people actually doing the work. But even if you had one manager for every 100 people, that's still 100 managers. This church of thousands had seven. Seven. They had seven because it wasn't about titles. It wasn't about recognition. It wasn't about seeing how many expensive and elaborate programs that we can have for our church that require tons of resources and time and energy and volunteers and and titles. It's because seven was sufficient to free the apostles to focus on their priority, the ministry of the word and prayer, and seven was sufficient to organize the saints, the whole church, for the work of ministry. Seven. We get this so messed up in our churches today. Instead of prioritizing the word of God and prayer and mobilizing the whole body for the mission of Christ through evangelism, through discipleship, through service, we make it about our individual wants, about our comforts, about our entertainments, about our hobby horses, or our own personal preferences. We come to church expecting to be served, to be made much of, right? I'm not here with any kind of responsibility to you. You are here to serve me. We come like a child, and we think to ourselves, maybe one day, if I grow up enough, I'll actually help out in some small way. I'll actually start serving the body in some small way. But until then, I'm going to leave it to the leadership, especially to that pastor, because that's what we, or maybe better yet, that's what they pay him for. I come, and and I say that I want the Word of God, but not too much. Well, you don't make that sermon too long. You don't read too many scripture passages there. And by all means, you don't preach with the unction of the Holy Spirit that brings about full conviction of sin because I am here and I want to feel good about myself. When complaints arise within the church, it's not because widows are being neglected and they have nothing to eat. It's because the leadership of the church isn't satisfying my personal preferences. I want them to give up preaching the word and praying to serve my table. I want them to feed my desires. We in in the American church are so fat 
on personal preferences that we are making ourselves sick and at the same time we are starving our souls of the one true thing that we need, the word and prayer. Don't nourish my soul by devoting yourself to the word and prayer. No, I, I want you to entertain me. Give me a rock show and a stand-up comedian who can make me laugh and tell great stories. And quite honestly, I don't care what it is that you slip into my popcorn and my drink. Poison me all you want. Now you gotta entertain me. Give me a well-decorated, temperature-controlled room, comfortable seating, fresh batteries in the remote so that I can click and find exactly what I want out of you, an endless supply of tasty treats because, let's face it, I don't want to get up and serve. I don't want to build up this body. I don't want to go outside and make disciples of all nations. That's your job. And we wonder why the church is in decline. And if Satan can't stop the mission of Christ through persecution from outside the church or through the subversion of sin from within, he will resort to distraction to keep us busy with anything other than the word of God in prayer. Anything. There's a problem. What about that problem? Have you considered this problem? What about this? What about this? You need to take care of this. You need to take care of this. Until we do this, until we get up off of our knees and we set down our Bibles and we pick up our little box of Band-Aids and we run from one tiny little boo-boo to the next over and over and over again. My friends, let's, let's not be sidetracked by our sin, or by our personal preferences. It it ought to be clear to us by now. And what we've seen so far in the book of Acts, that the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. That that is why we are here. Many disciples, maturing disciples. We've seen it multiple times in every single chapter so far. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness both with our words and with our lives together to the mission of God in Christ by proclaiming the gospel for the evangelization of the lost and for the edification of the church and by living out, by commending, by displaying the gospel in our lives together as we love and are devoted to each other. I mean, we see it right here. Verse one, the disciples were increasing in number and as the church acknowledged the problem as they set their priorities on the word and prayer while tangibly showing love To each other without partiality, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, that, that making and maturing many disciples will only happen as we make the word of God and prayer our priorities in everything that we do, everything, children's ministry, When we gather here for worship on Sundays in our community groups, in our life transformation groups, the word and prayer have got to be central. I really want to see us as a church come alive with regard to prayer over this year. It's one of the reasons why we started doing the 6.30 Tuesday morning prayer. Guys, I would encourage you, set the alarms and be here. It's important for us to be a praying church. Not just that the elders are praying, but that we as a church are praying. The elders are leading in the corporate prayer of the church. That's what's happening. Right? If you can't do that, 
9.25 on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, we stand right up here. We kind of talk about what the, the service is about for the day, and we set our hearts upon the Word of God. Right? In your community groups, make prayer a priority. In your LTGs, make prayer a priority. As let's grow in this. Let's devote ourselves to the things that God calls us to devote ourselves to. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't do all of that other stuff or we can't do all of that other stuff, but only as it serves to advance or enhance the Spirit-empowered, Word-driven mission of making disciples. And the more it requires the administration of tasks and the less it involves the teaching of the Word and corporate prayer, the more it is going to be necessary for the leaders, third, to delegate responsibilities. Our focus as a church has got to be on disciple-making. And as our focus as elders is on the word and prayer for that function of making disciples, that's going to affect the way we think about what we do. There, there is a great many good things that we could do as a body that either we won't do because it doesn't serve the mission of the church or we can't do unless that responsibility is delegated to someone other than the elders. Now, in this case, that very good thing was this daily distribution. But just because the apostles couldn't take the lead on it, it didn't mean that we were to stop doing it. Just set it aside, forget all about it. No, the ministry needed some structure and some oversight in order to be more productive and not overlook the social, physical, and spiritual needs of the body in the process. And so the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and they said to them, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So congregation, you identify seven faithful men and we will prayerfully, under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the word, appoint them to this duty. The congregation was involved in affirming the character, the competencies, and the commitments of these men and the existing leadership appointed them. That's what happened. Verse 5 tells us that the congregation chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, friends, I, I do believe that this is a prototype for what would become the office of deacon. I don't think it's necessarily deacons here, but it's the, at least the prototype for it. And, and I, back in May... I think May 10th of 2015, during our local church leadership series, I, I devoted an entire sermon to the office of deacon. And, and if you're curious about that, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. Though the word deacon is not used here, because that's a big hang-up, right? Though the word deacon is not used here, three conjugates of the word are used. And so you have that distribution, right? That service on the level of the whole church serving, one at the level of what would be the office of deacon, and one that is used to describe what would become the office of elder, the ministry of the word and prayer. And also, 
if you remove this passage, Acts chapter 6, from the passages on the office of deacon, what you're left with are Philippians 1.1 and 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. And all that leaves you with is a title and some qualifications with no idea what it is they're exactly supposed to do other than generally serve. Well, you know, we know that the whole church is supposed to serve. Well, gosh, we saw Jesus serve. We saw the apostles serve. We saw all of the leadership serve. Whole church is supposed to serve. So the, the conclusion, if, we, if this is not speaking of deacons, or at least the prototype for deacons, what we're left with is one office, the office of elder, not two, the offices of deacon and elder. Right? Because we would think that deacons in, say, Philippians 1.1 is just describing everyone who is not an elder. Now, let me just say this, though. That's honestly a better way to think about it. It's a better way for us to think about it. You, you see, when, when you make ministry about offices, then inevitably we fall into this worldly corporate mindset where unless I have a title, I have no responsibilities, no requirements, no expectations. I'm not called to serve and to live in such a way that my life reflects the gospel. Right? That's just for elders and deacons. They're the ones that are supposed to meet all of these spiritual qualifications. That's not my problem. That's not our problem. That's their problem. That's the problem of the offices of the church. And friends, that's a horrible way to look at it. You see, this was the church's problem to acknowledge it was the churches under the leadership and direction of the Word, Spirit, and the apostles' responsibility to set biblical priorities, and it was the church's responsibility to serve the mission of the church, whether they were named among the seven or not. Friends, we all have the privilege to be servants even if we are never selected to be deacons or elders, and it is a privilege because when God calls us and commands us to live together as a body, he's not throwing duty and obligation at you. He's calling you back to the original purpose for which we were made to live together the ways that we were created to live, living together in love towards one another in practically caring for each other and maximizing our joy in him in the process. Friends, there is great freedom and delight and blessing as we serve within the church because we are doing the very thing that we are meant to do. Just like a fish is most happy when it's swimming in water. Take it out of water and it's miserable. But yet so often, we turn that around. Because I've got to be honest with you. There are many, many times where I think to myself, you know what, I... I would just like to go back to being just a faithful church member. You know, I, I loved my time at Clifton Baptist Church. I, I loved just being one of the congregation and being able to love and care for and have the freedom, the, the lack of responsibility to be able to invest in people and, and just kind of do this. And, and I was happy to serve. I was quick to jump in and do whatever needed to be done. And because of that, guess what happened? They made me a deacon. And I enjoyed that too. I was happy to serve the church alongside faithful brothers and sisters. And then you know what happened? 
the church decided to affirm me as a church planter. Now, maybe they did that just to get rid of me. Still remains to be seen. But guys, I, I look back fondly on that time where I was just a, a common, ordinary, nothing special member of Christ's body. It was a blessing to live and to serve and to love that way. Here's here's the irony of the office of deacon. These seven were chosen to serve because the church was failing to love each other impartially. Do you get that? This is not some exalted, coveted position that we should all aspire to, right? It was a necessary function in order to get the church back on the right track. Just like the, you need the trellis to get the vine off the ground so that it can continue to grow and bear fruit, or you have to fix the sails so that the ship can be propelled by the wind. But you know, these principles apply to the church beyond the office of deacon. I don't want you to walk away and think that this is only about deacons. It's not. It applies to us all. You see, we delegate more responsibilities than we have offices here at the church. And we do that purposefully so that the focus would be on serving the body of Christ rather than on titles. So for example... There are more qualifications, responsibilities, and commitments for someone to serve in Redeemer Kids or to volunteer for the family discipleship gatherings than for Redeemer Tots. And there's even more for children's ministry coordinators and more for the directors of children's ministry still. The same is true for community group apprentices, community group leaders, and coaches who then train up community group leaders and apprentices. Campus ministry volunteers, interns, guys participating in the worship cohort like Eric here, people who are training to do biblical counseling or the guys that go out and do pulpit supply, none of those areas of ministry require that you be a deacon or an elder. But each of them requires different qualifications and responsibilities. As far as qualifications, they didn't just appoint a willing body, right? It's not like they open it up, hey, we need, we need seven deacons, and then the first seven that raise their hands, those were the ones that were coming, right? Or they didn't just go out and find scrubs who would go and do the bare minimum. No, the church carefully identified people of character, conviction, competency, and commitment to the church. In verse 3, the apostles said to the full number of the disciples, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so those who were appointed to the position of responsibility are to be of good repute, of good reputation. It means that you can approve them. They're above reproach. You've witnessed and you can attest to their character, their conduct, their convictions, their competencies. You have seen them faithfully serving and blessing this body. And you, the whole church, can confirm it. 
But not only that, we see that they're full of the Spirit. You can clearly see the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're humble. They're servant-hearted. They love the gospel and proclaim it to others. You can see them uh, see in them love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those fruits of the Spirit. But not only that, they're also full of wisdom, meaning that they know God's Word and God's ways and how to faithfully apply God's Word to everyday life. They know how to carefully and pastorally resolve problems and direct others' hearts back to the wisdom of God. A faithful leader can anticipate problems and head them off so that they don't derail the mission of the church. And a faithful leader lives a godly life and gives of him or herself to see others do the same. Now, we don't know all that much about the men on this list. I mean, we do know Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a gifted leader. He, too, proclaimed the gospel with wisdom and with the power of the Spirit. Right? He, he was dragged from the city and stoned for preaching the gospel, but the final words that Luke records of Stephen saying was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Philip, called the evangelist, would spend time away from his family traveling through Samaria. If you're a Jew, you hate the Samaritans. They're the worst of the worst. And yet there he is ministering to them, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, another exceptional leader. Nicholas was a God-fearing Gentile. He's a proselyte from Antioch, which means he was a God-fearing Gentile. He's not a Hellenist. He's a Gentile. Now, what kind of man do you think he was to be the first named Gentile convert appointed by the apostles themselves to the very first ministry position? good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And this is what God is calling leaders from within the church to. These are not my standards or the elder standards. This is what God wants of leaders. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's not me, Chet. Just forget about that. I just need to stop doing what I'm doing, give up my responsibilities here at the church, I would say, don't do that. Double down instead on the word and prayer. Because here's the thing. That mindset of just like, forget it, I'm not perfect, I need to quit, give up my responsibility, is rooted in unbelief. That the word and prayer can't produce that in me. That God is not able to do that work in me. I can't do what he's called me to do. And he can't do it through the means of the word and prayer that he gives me. And that statement is also rooted in misbelief. Because I love other things as much, if not more than Christ, and so I view service and growth and sacrifice and prayer and study as a duty rather than a joy. 
That's something I have the privilege of doing. But these men, they became men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom from God's Word because God was doing a work in them and because they were devoting themselves to the very things that God gave them to devote themselves to, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And what is the result of that? Good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So don't quit. Instead, dependently devote yourself to the Lord. And and, and because these are spiritual qualifications, does everybody agree that they're spiritual qualifications? Because they are spiritual qualifications, it was a spirit-led, word-driven act for the apostles to appoint them. The Word and Spirit identified the qualifications. The Word and Spirit directed the whole congregation to choose these seven. The Word and Spirit was evident in their lives. And the Word and Spirit were at work as the apostles delegated responsibilities as they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, these responsibilities of various roles within the church will look different. Right? The responsibilities of, say, children's ministry coordinator is going to be different than someone who's running sound or, or running PowerPoint or a community group leader or the deacon of practical care. They're all going to be different. But here are three directives for any position of responsibility at, Re- at Redeemer straight out of this text. Okay? Those who serve as leaders, one, meet particular needs according to the word. That's what these seven men are doing by making sure that no one was being neglected in the fellowship of the church. They were dealing with the the spiritual every bit as much as they were dealing with the physical and the social. Two, those who serve as leaders promote unity around the word. These seven men were appointed to head off disunity within the church. You see, leaders are meant to be peacemakers, Leaders have to attend to any number of thorny frustrations and problems within the church. And so they need to be people who are full of grace and full of wisdom, who use their gifts and abilities that the Holy Spirit has given them to settle conflicts, not to stir up strife. They need to see the big picture, the mission and vision of the church in view, and serve that purpose rather than their own small-minded concerns. They are not turfy, caring only for their own area, their own rights, their own agendas. People who are grumbling or complaining, people who are resentful towards other leaders, people who are unhappy with the church cannot faithfully serve the body. Deacons are not supposed to be the loudest complaints and those who who jar the church with actions and attitudes, but those who labor hard to help the church fulfill its mission. Leaders serve as shock absorbers, not as roadblocks or emergency brakes. They're shock absorbers helping the car to better navigate the potholes and hazards on the road towards its ultimate destination. They are mission-minded. They're willing to play their part to edify, to build up in love, to help the whole church fulfill its mission, to see all of God's people, even those who are not yet named, to reach maturity in Christ. 
And the third directive, those who serve as leaders support the ministry of the word. What we ultimately see happening in this text is that these appointed leaders serve the elders so that the elders can lead, and these appointed leaders lead others so that others can serve. That's what they're doing here. Appointed leaders serve the elders so that the elders can lead, and the appointed leaders lead others so that others can serve. And let me just tell you that there is a whole lot of stuff that we, the elders, are doing that we don't need to be doing. Again, we're happy to do it. We do it because we want to set an example in service in this body. But there are plenty of things that Caleb or Kyle or myself do that any one of you could do just as easily and probably a whole lot better because we're trying to balance too much and we're taking our focus off of the word of prayer. I mean, everything from the fact that Kyle, if you come here on Sunday morning, you're going to find him down in the kitchen. Kyle doesn't need to be down in the kitchen. Other people can be down in the kitchen. Things like finances or communications or, or, you know, mowing lawns and picking up sticks or this big old building. And not to mention all of the opportunities that exist outside these walls. The opportunities that we could take advantage of to reach out and engage our community. Because we cannot do it all. Our primary purpose is to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And when that happens... The whole church is serving with appointed leaders diligently administrating their areas of service. When when the elders are devoting themselves to the word of God and prayer, here's what happens in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, priests, gave up their futile but exalted position of service in the offering of sacrifices that could not save, and they became obedient to the faith. Friends, this is what happens when the whole church, elders, leaders, deacons, congregation, embraces the mission. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that is what we want for this church. Elders, deacons, leaders, entire congregation. That's what we're doing this whole thing for. And so, we acknowledge the problems, we set priorities, we delegate responsibilities, because the right structure of leadership guides the whole church in the mission of disciple-making. 